Welcome into Loserville, folks. It's Philip Kingston with your second edition of Loserville with interesting people who aren't T.C. Fleming. Uh, this week we have, instead, Amber Sims and Jerry Hawkins, um, because I wanted to have a little bit of a discussion about the work that they do in Dallas and how it relates to our local politics. Say hi, y'all. Good evening. How y'all doing? What do you sound like, Amber? Hey, y'all. <laughs> um, Jerry, let's start with you, if you don't mind. Could you tell us what your uh, work consists of, who you do it for, um, what it means to you? Yeah. Um, currently, I'm the executive director of Dallas Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. Uh, which is part of a 14-place initiative of the W.K. Kellogg Foundation. Um, Our mission is to create a radically inclusive city by addressing race and racism through the TRHT framework, which includes narrative change, relationship building, and equitable policies and practices. Um, We work now uh, with 100-plus partners. Um, Do this work because we believe in racial equity. Uh, Amber and I have been uh, working on issues of racial equity in the city for, uh, I would say, eight plus years. Um, so to see some of the work um, and efforts that we uh, created or helped create uh, come to um, at least uh, a beginning stage is a, is a good thing. Talk more about that framework. The, I'm a little bit familiar with your work. I believe you uh, came to help us at City of Dallas. Um, what is the, the framework of, uh, uh, how do you describe it again? Dallas Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. Oh, okay. The name of the organization. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, the framework is based on a model um, of TRCs or Truth and Reconciliation Commissions. Uh, those happen all over the world. Um, when a country is going through an ethnic conflict or a civil war um, and has done uh, atrocious stuff, you know, most popularly um, the one that happened in Canada after the discovery of um, indigenous people being found, uh, you know, going to boarding houses, assimilation boarding houses uh, funded by the government and in South Africa after Nelson Mandela was uh, in prison for over uh, 20, uh, you know, 20 plus years to, um, to basically, um, stamp out, um, the the black majority, um, under a, 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 you know, racist regime called apartheid. And so after that, um, you know, during the process, communities receive, um, ability to testify and to tell their truth. Um, but also the ability to receive some type of community forgiveness and um, community support through um, mental health and social work. Um, and that process is actually still going on in South Africa. Um, unfortunately, the United States has never gone through any type of uh, truth-telling process about um, its native removal and massacre, slavery, civil war, uh, Jim Crow, and so this is an effort to pilot it into in 14 places, 13 cities in the entire state of Alaska. Um, and for us to you know, start that work in the, the framework areas, which include 
Um, you know, telling the truth, which includes um, actively healing from the daily effects of racism and building equitable policies and practices with, um, you know, organizations, institutions like the city of Dallas. So like at the city of Dallas, you would bring us a framework, a, a set of tools to figure out how to address inequity in city government. Well, that's the last, that's the last stage. The first stage is acknowledgement um, of something that actually happened. And um, have we ever done that? No way. Uh, <laughs> and uh, an audit, um, a historical audit, because, you know, the city loves um, the sort of, um, you know, data audits, you know, um, but not a not a qualitative data audit, you know, not hearing from the community about what the city is actively doing to it and has done, you know, most of our community issues of, has direct relationship to something that happened in the past. Amber, you work for a different organization. Tell us how the work you do differs or is the same as Jerry. Yes. So the work that I do, um, the co-founder of an organization called Young Leaders Strong City, and we've been doing work since 2014 with uh, high school students in mind, especially to have conversations about race and identity, but also their vision for change. I grew up in Pleasant Grove and in Mesquite um, is where I ended up and also spent part of my time in Birmingham, Alabama, which is where my dad is from. And one of the really distinctly different things, among other things, about the two cities that I spent a lot of time in is Birmingham is a city that has reckoned with in some ways been forced to reckon with its history of race and racism and has, you know, numerous monuments, museums dedicated to the civil rights struggle um, that really tell the story of the history of the city's racist history and past. And so growing up and going to the civil rights museum, to the churches, um, to the parks in Birmingham, I knew very much what Birmingham, Alabama um, had gone through, um, what my grandparents and family had lived through in real time. Um, I think about my aunts who are the same age as the young girls that were killed in the church bombing in Birmingham. And that was very real to me growing up. Uh, but then coming back, you know, after the summers and after we lived in Birmingham and coming to, you know, where I've spent most of my life, which is Dallas, Texas, there were no similar stories. And it would lead you to think uh, that there weren't any stories of race and racism um, in Dallas. And that's exactly what Dallas wants us to do. And so I wasn't having conversations about race and identity growing up in Mesquite or in Dallas um, or about the disparities, just really seeing it. Uh, my grandmother grew up in South Dallas. She lived in the Bonton Projects for a long time. And my mom grew up in South Dallas and then moved um, to Oak Cliff. And what's really interesting, I'll share, is that that move to Oak Cliff and what it recognized, um, I mean, what it signified, especially for middle class Black people, um, was, was really moving out of South Dallas into a place that was to become the middle class of Black families in the city. Um, and leaving South Dallas behind. Um, but I really didn't learn any of this history. I really had to seek it out through the work that Jerry and I have done together through the organizing work that I've done uh, to create a more equitable fair park in Dallas. Um, and then just through learning. So the experiences that we create is we want to ensure that our students know the history of the place in which they're in. 
that they know that there are people in Dallas uh, and in our communities that have been fighting and resisting, especially Black people and people of color, um, and for them to see Dallas more holy. Uh, but then with that in mind, what can they envision? Because some of these things have been done before. We just don't talk about them. And what do they want to see? And what are what impact does the false narratives that Dallas has told about itself and allowed to be created? How do those still um, exist in our imagination? Uh, but then how can we use students to really reimagine and reshape what their future can look like that creates a more inclusive and equitable city? Both of you are telling a similar story of uh, a city that doesn't reckon with its past, um, at least not in an honest way. What do you, what do you think is, is the cause of that? And is that, is there any other place that you've been to that does things the way Dallas does? I think every uh, American city has to do better at telling um, the full story of its past and the people that are here. Dallas just does it in a very interesting way because it's kind of created a, um, you know, what I term a business model of a city. Um, and in a business model of a city, you know, you um, very, um, you know, mistakenly forward thinking um, and you create a kind of an absence of um, like city local culture. Right? It's, it's, it's all about bringing business in. Right. Um, and so um, it's a very different place than other uh, typical American city and that, you know, Native people lived here and, and were removed from this land and massacred. Slavery happened here, you know, even for a short amount of time, because Dallas is still a very young city when it comes to American cities. Um, you know, Reconstruction, Jim Crow happened here. So all of those things in American history happened in Dallas. It's just a very short amount of time. And so, you know, we're talking about just what, seven, eight generations of folks. Um, and we can name those things, you know, uh, despite Dallas's very intentional way of trying to erase it. And with that erasure comes like true erasure, right? Uh, and, and you know this from your uh, time on the council um, in the 70s and 80s, folks were really just trying to remove the landscape of Dallas as it was. Um, you know, trying to skate over national historic things, trying to stuff on top of cemeteries, uh, you know, all kind of like just typical cultural erasure. And obviously that came with erasing um, things that major U.S. cities have, which are cultural and ethnic enclaves. Um, the last of the ethnic enclaves left, right? Little Mexico, Freedmanstown. Um, and now you have these very... Um, um, anti-cultural districts, I call them, uh, which are the arts district, medical district, design district, right? Things that are have anything to do with people and more so about the, the work that they do, um, which is a very strange place. You know, um, I, I was thinking about this. Uh, I think Patrick Kennedy is the one who said to me, if you look at any, you know, American city um, and look, and if it has uh freeways in the central part of the city, you know, you always know that those freeways are where the black people lived. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, people tend to think that those were planned by traffic engineers and that they make some sense for transportation. And no, they, they were just removal devices, I think. Yeah, I want Amber to speak mm -hmm. to this too, but um, 
those are extremely very intentional. <laughs> um, not only not only in the in the way that they were placed uh, to remove black people from the city center, uh, but in the way that they were meant to like create segregation. And segregation is the the biggest uh, you know indicator. And um, this is one um, indicator, particularly in data that cities have. They have segregation data because once once you know the the percentage of a population that lives in a certain community, you can find out segregation, um, you know, indicators and segregation, particularly by those highways, um, which are very much anti-black policy because the majority of them uh, destroyed or bisected or in in, in this case, trisected a a black community because we have three highways uh, near Woodall Rogers, 345 and 75 that that trisected um, a black neighborhood, which I haven't seen um, in, a, in, a, in a city before, not a trisection, maybe a bisection. The, uh, the one of the other examples Patrick was pointing to is the main freeway in Detroit that they're now taking out. Um, that was that just absolutely was placed to get rid of a black community. And I don't I don't know. That's a uh, I think if you're a Dallasite, particularly like a white Dallasite, it's really easy to not know. Um, and so I, that's part of why I, I wanted to have you two on, because I, I don't see in my time on the council, in watching the county commissioner's court, um, in watching all of the sort of public spaces here in Dallas, I I just don't see the same conversations that I see in other American cities. Yeah. Um, and I would, I would offer too that the intentionality behind what freeways did to Dallas and other major cities. I mean, you go to new Orleans and you're in Treme and you see what is one of the oldest historical black neighborhoods. And it's just been, dissected by these freeways and the impact. And so we're talking about harm that was done to Black communities, but we're not just talking about enslavement. We are talking about something more sinister, more uh, savvy, (laughs) um, and more planned than we even give credit to. I I don't think that we can um, begin to imagine how well orchestrated that these attempts to destroy Black cities were. Uh, A great example is when you think of Black Tulsa. And um, what happened is that the city was destroyed and burned after the massacre of 1921. Yes. And a lot of the city was rebuilt, which we don't talk about. And the city was also destroyed again by the creation of freeways. And so when we look at the city of Dallas and we go through the parts of Dallas in which the black community is in, you're talking about South Dallas, but we're also talking about far North Dallas and the narratives that are told about the people that are there is extremely harmful. And it's extremely ahistorical because what it doesn't tell is the extreme harm and intentionality and intensity in which these communities have been made to look like that. Well, and, the, you know, I think um, I'm not the only one who sort of got focused on Tulsa because of Watchmen. 
You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's really interesting how we have cultural conversations in the United States. If it's not on TV, it's probably not being discussed. Yeah. And then the thing that I'll add, too, is that even before the freeways, we can't talk about them as just like a thing that happened. But it was also a, com- a coordinated campaign in Dallas. If you go back and read old newspaper articles, the Dallas Morning News, about how they described Black communities, it sets a perfect tone for what they were trying to do. Black communities were described as Black eyes and eyesores and and decrepit and run down and places it's no good. And so there were also, you know, in the late 1920s and 1930s, when there was literally a Great Depression going through to mark these Black communities as not having any worth and value and things that needed to be cleared um, as slums that needed to be handled and taken away because they were an eyesore to the city. And so then by the time that we get to the real creation of freeways in the city in the 1930s and 40s, a narrative has been created about these places and about what they are and, um, the, and who uh, lives there, right? And who and the lives there. And so of- as a result, what happens? You know, it's easy to, to destroy. It's the first people that people, first place that people look at to destroy um, and, and build something else because it wasn't worth anything, um, allegedly. Well, and I see the language of um, anti-Black neighborhood um, sentiment being echoed today with regard to homeless, you know? Mm-hmm. Because the the intention is the same. It's what the what the majority would, re- or the, I wouldn't say the majority, the establishment would really like is for those communities to disappear, to just not be here. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I I think it's really like once you recognize that, and you recognize, okay, well this this this, met, this uh, way of treating our black residents was wrong. You know, it takes a little, another little step to figure out, oh, I'm talking that way about another group of people. Um, Mm -hmm. And I mean, it should be pointed out that homelessness, that black people are overrepresented in the homeless population. So it's, it's really just a different species of talking about people in the same way. Well, so we're talking about I-345 a lot these days, I believe based on just kind of nose counting um, that a majority of the city council is now in favor of removing I-345. And the resistance to removing I-345 is being led by Black leaders. Um, And that is not entirely confusing to me. I think I understand why, because the patterns of travel and where people live have changed, and they are in their in their estimation, representing the people that they represent. How do we have those conversations? Because I don't think the black community in Dallas wants me to tell them how to travel. I I mean, I really think that that's never going to work. Yeah, so we've been having this conversation um, through a company that uh, Amber and I uh, co-founded called the Imagining Freedom Institute. Um, we were asked by the coalition of New, da- uh, New Dallas, who had been having these conversations about tearing down 345 for a while now, but they were, it was a bit, to be honest, a very um, a white-led conversation <laughs> by them. Um, and, and really, um, 
a, a lack of respect for the black community who um, had a past, right? And they they asked us to figure out that past. Um, and our role was to um, highlight the the lives and the um, the history of um, the three communities that were destroyed by 345, which included Freeman's Town, uh, Short North Dallas, Stringtown, or the Prey, some call it, and Deep Ellum. Um, and in a workshop uh, called 345, Racism and Reimagination, um, and we did a subsequent webinar, we talked about the, um, the, the beauty of the community that was there, uh, particularly Freeman's Town, because it had to it was the one of the first and largest uh, established uh, black uh, freedom colonies slash towns um, in Dallas. Um, it had everything. It had watch makers and repairs. It had hotels. It had taxis. All uh, built by and for black people. Uh, I mean, everything in there. Um, and it was destroyed by that uh, freeway. Um, we also talked about the issue that we don't discuss enough, which is the policy. Um, you know, Amber uh, talked about this policy, the intentionality of destroying uh, black communities, which is not just uh, a legislative policy. It is a, it is a very intentional narrative making. Uh, so research can be done. So can be done, uh, you know, a 20 year process to create a, destroy a community. Um, the issue is, how do you um, talk about a freeway uh, that was intentionally built over Black communities uh, to destroy that Black communities without um, the benefit of the Black community? If you tear down 345 right now, there's 270 plus acres of land. In a developer city, a white-led developer city like Dallas, how are you going to maintain um, any semblance of equity? How will black communities benefit from the development of that stitching back the city? Um, and the truth is they won't because there's no policy right now uh, on the books that will uh, guarantee inclusion for black uh, families, particularly uh, the, the descendants of those folks who live there. There's not one. So it will just be a land grab. It will be a development uh, heaven, you know what I mean? Like, downtown deep Ellum, you know, uptown property um, that will not benefit them. And so I get that. They also, I think the black communities also have been lulled into the narrative that freeways are good, that the car is good for the city. And that's a, um, that still is being fed to them every day through automotive commercials, through uh, the way the city treats city development, talking about fix my streets, you know, they haven't talked about any type of uh, public transportation or, or other modes of transportation that every big city has that we don't have. Um, and so there's a dependency on the car because also black jobs are not located in black communities or near black communities. So, um, I mean, there's so many other issues and I'm, I'm sure Amber will share those, but um, those, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg, you know, black people won't benefit from tearing down a highway. Yeah. And, and now on both sides of the highway, it's astronomical costs. I mean, I live, I can see 345 out of my window and I've been here for six years and I'm looking to buy and more than likely I cannot afford a house in my Bryan Place neighborhood. 
um, and to buy, you know, um, in downtown either. And what is being created on both sides with the development is not inclusive. It's not affordable. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's not designed for uh, people of color in mind um, and the representation. Um, and, and so what's been, what's been thought about. And it becomes something uh, interesting when we think about that freeways were a tool of destruction for Black communities, what it means that there are literal Black people that are saying, I need this thing to get to and for work. Um, when the thing that was like really harmful and dangerous, we're also depending on it for our survival. Um, and, and just to get from point A to point B and, and, and what that means. Uh, but there definitely need to be guarantees written in. There's nothing to say that Black people and people of color will benefit. I mean, they won't even fix, you know, the city's not even fixing Black communities as they stand right now. And we're talking about creating whole new places. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that freeways or highways are extremely destructive. We know that they're harmful for people. They're harmful for the environment. They break up communities. And yet, of all the things that we can imagine, we cannot imagine in the city has not done a great job of investing in communities of color. I mean, just further down, you think about there's a there's a project that's going up to, you know, really dead man's curve and fix that. And that's another highway. You know, there are projects through Mill City. And so I don't know that the white community would be advocating for these things if they were like literally in black communities. Um, right now, and only, um, and that Black people actually stood to gain from it. And so it also makes me think about like what community care looks like for all of our, for all of our good. And so what is good um, for those of us that have been harmed is good for the whole. Um, but we've really got to figure out what is good for those that have been harmed. What does repair and restoration look like uh, to, to get to something that creates more equity? Okay, so one of the developments on the side of I-345 right now is Jack Matthews' residential tower next to the old Dallas High School. Mm -hmm. um, and it is 300 and some odd units, and over 150 of them are affordable units. Mm -hmm. So he, he did that on his own. He was not mm -hmm. required by the city to do that, to your point about not having a policy. But subsequent to him starting that project, we did, in fact, pass a policy in 2017, I think, the, the comprehensive housing policy. And so if it is followed, um, and there, that's a big if. Um, it's a there, big if, but the HUD was in town uh, investigating folks who wouldn't even follow that. Very easy to follow affordable housing policy that the city passed. So. Well, the, you know, the state ties our hands a little bit because it makes it so that we can only incentivize affordable housing. We can't demand it. But one of the things that could happen uh, with the 345 removal is that the land underneath belongs to TxDOT. They, you know, they bought it, bought it, in, you know, from <laughs> from the black owners that had it before, uh, it, they didn't. The, the owners didn't have a lot of choices presented to them. Yeah, um, in the domain that we can, they, that's a whole other conversation. The way Dallas and states use eminent domain. So, but it, you know, if we actually follow our own policy, um, publicly owned land 
is one of the few things that you can contribute to a, a private development as long as you're getting affordable housing back. So, it, I mean, what, I'm, what I guess I'm getting at is if we actually follow the things that we say and that we voted on, there would be at least an opportunity for Black people to be benefited by the I-345 tear out. Mm-hmm. Um, I am hearing from from Jerry that he he will believe it when he sees it. Yeah, I don't I don't I don't believe in that um, affordable housing as it stands doesn't even benefit black folks. Um, so there is a, uh, a great Brookings report, uh, Brookings Institute report that I uh, just like stagger. It staggers me every time I, I look at it. And it's called the devaluation of black assets. Um and it talks about um, the literal presence of Black people in communities and in homes basically devalues the place, the land, and the actual asset, which is supposed to be the home, right? Um, they say when a neighborhood turns more than 10% Black, this devaluation starts to occur, uh, which is part of the uh, the history of uh, you know, the campaign of bombing that happened in South Dallas from 1929 to 1951, when white families, uh, real estate owners were playing a game with them as well, uh, saying that these black folks are going to come in here. They're going to bring your, your housing property value down. You need to keep them out. Right. Um, but they knew very essentially that not that these black folks couldn't afford it because the actual black folks who were moving into South Dallas at the time, this was a working class white Jewish neighborhood. It wasn't like a wealthy neighborhood, you know, they made more money than those white folks. Cause you to be, to move to like a place like McKinney. Now you have to, the black people who live there make more money than the white people who live there income, not wealth. So we just talk about income. They made they can afford to live there. They didn't care about that. They knew that this black uh, person that was moving into their neighborhood would devalue the, the value of their home. So affordable housing doesn't do anything about that. And that is based on federal, state, and local policy. The federal policy, obviously, uh, the Homeowners Loan Corporation, redlining, you know, it's the 1937 maps of Dallas that talk about literally creating, uh, you know, a lack of value based on who's living in a neighborhood, right? That's a federal policy that created you know, what we have now, this discriminatory banking, discriminatory lending. We haven't fixed that at all. We haven't even addressed it. Right. So to do affordable housing, you know, it's, it's, it's a it's a colorblind policy. We haven't even fixed the color stuff. Right. <laughs> so I, I just I just think that we we haven't even we haven't even been courageous enough to address just the things that the city, the state and the federal government has created. So it's going to be very hard for us to even like touch affordable housing and be equitable about it. Uh, we need more bolder strategies. So practically speaking, what, what should Dallas be doing? What, what is, what is step number one? So, you know, I, I know that you don't like this plan, uh, that resilient Dallas plan, um, but I think it had some good steps to it. And the first step was to do an audit. Uh, while we were doing that plan, because the city as an entity doesn't want to be culpable to the things that it's done, because culpability creates a whole nother 
list of problems for a city. You know, now you guys talk about like actual like repair, reparations and other rise, right? Uh, and so I think the city has to like create a thing. You know, the 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 mayor and now the police chief have stepped out in culpability uh, in, in, in the last 10 years. Mayor Rawlings, when he apologized to Santos Rodriguez's mom, now the new uh, Dallas police chief, when he apologized to her in person, right? So that's a culpable thing. You know, I think that that creates a whole nother cast of things. And the city has to be culpable of some of the things it did. Because this thing, this, this, it, will, it will be here forever. Um, culpability, acknowledgement, and apology are the first steps because you need that to start to move forward. And I think those are really practical things for a welcoming city or you know all of the things that Dallas purports itself to be. Uh, next is, is really thinking about a historical audit. What are the actual policies that created the issues and problems that we had? And Dallas has never done that. And during that resilient Dallas plan, it shied away from that. It literally skipped over that step and went to training of staff, which is why the city uh, went to race forward and gear and approved a $160,000 training uh, contract with gear to train its top city staff on racial equity. That's training is great, but what are they training about? Right? They don't even know what happened, you know. So that's the that's the issue I have with. It. Well, I I and I so I am a critic of the resilience plan because not for what it called for because everything it called for was good. Like the the goals of the plan are all things that I agree with. I just think resilience has to mean something, and what that plan is is a sustainability plan. It's not resilience. And the way you can see that is that it didn't mention COVID. You know, it, the things that have actually happened to Dallas to hurt it, the storm this last year, there's nothing in the resilience plan about how to recover from an actual natural disaster, which was the original meaning of resilience. So that's my only beef with the, with the, the plan is it's a semantic type of thing. It's not but the I plan bad. That's so that, that the initial plan happened in 2018 and that was, way before that. But I also think, you know, this one focused on equity instead of what other cities focused on, which is natural disasters or climate change. But I also think folks have to be, after last year, if you're not resilient to racism, uh, like if you don't have a plan for what happens under racism, like you're, you're, you're also dead in the water too as a city. So, you know, and you see what happens, right? With, all, with, with, with Portland, right? I mean, the city is under siege by folks who want justice. Milwaukee, uh, Minnesota. Do I have to keep naming all it? Ferguson. Like, if you don't have a plan for that, and I'm not talking about a police plan. I'm talking about a, a plan to go in and provide community resources for folks who have been under racial trauma, under oppression, you know? So I, I think that is, it is a, it's a different way of looking at it. Amber, what's the thing that you would start with? I believe listening to people. Um, one of the things that the city does really badly, I learned this when um, the Ma- Mayor Rawlings had proposed a takeover of Fair Park for it to be privatized. And this was five or six years ago, but it was basically going to happen because he said that he wanted it to happen. And he had Walt Human, who was the person at the time that he wanted to take over the deal. And there was so much organizing that had to be started by community members to figure out what was going on and to disrupt 
these park and recreation uh, board meetings and to see in real time that there was no interest in getting community engagement and involvement, um, that these processes will just happen and go because these meetings are happening at what, 10 or 11 a.m. Um, and, and they'll just happen because someone says so. Um, and so even thinking back to that time, I believe it was Paul Sims, um, Philip, that you had on the park and uh, recreation board, but it's extremely important to get people that have equity mindsets on these boards and commissions. Um, they make really important decisions that a lot of times people aren't watching and um, can really sound the alarm for community members. Um, and so, you know, some of the work that uh, folks are doing for people that are considered to be undocumented by what this country calls documented to be able to serve on boards and commissions um, for us to, you know, really loosen our credentials on who gets to be on boards and commissions to make them more accessible, um, to have these meetings at times when folks can meet. Um, to, you know, the agendas are public, but these closed door meetings can happen. You know, you can be a community member. I was at the time who's working a full-time job who would have to, you know, who could get off at one point of the day and then they might decide, right? Oh, we're going to just make this meeting later, have a closed door meeting and I'd be there all day. Um, and so like kind of these, you know, the accountability portion um, is, is really important. I mean, we've been to meetings too, where, um, there's not enough seats to get into a city council uh, chamber meeting. Um, and they're saying, oh, it's at capacity. And this was before COVID. And, and so like we say that we want public voice, but then when the public shows up in any way, Dallas is really a city that isn't built on inclusiveness or really sharing the narrative. Um, and so I continue to think that we've got to build um, and support a community of organizers um, who are on the ground and committed to, to doing the change. Um, and that those people have to be the folks that are directly harmed. Um, and it's, you know, I would be ahistorical in saying that Dallas um, hasn't had that. It, it's just been rooted out. I mean, you think about folks such as Diane Ragsdale and Juanita Kraft and Catherine uh, Gilliam, you know, who really were community advocates and, and change agents and how much they were able to get accomplished. Um, but also the narrative, right? Back uh, how, how their stories were told and not taken with care. Um, are extremely harmful to, to, to what we do. And so I, I really think starting with the community in mind and then, of course, addressing the harms um, and the history of harms that this history has, uh, that the city has and is still doing. <laughs> you, know, um, you know, we hear from folks at Shingle Mountain and um, really throughout the city that can tell you that the city is literally undoing with the right hand what it just did with the left. And so, you know, there is like really no um, true intentionality around changing things. And that's concerning. I can't prove it, you know, um, but I just tend to think that if the council member for that district had wanted shingle mountain fixed it would have happened faster mm -hmm. and that's a nasty thing to say and you know mm -hmm. I, I don't sometimes i mean to be nasty usually i'm trying to be funny but i i really i worry about that because um the way our city government is set up there is a fair amount of sort of fiefdom type power within these city council districts and you get somebody with a mindset that isn't you know I'm going to fix things equitably or whatever else it, it, you can, I think you can really miss some opportunities. And I, I don't, I just don't know what to do about that. 
Yeah, I think it, you know, one of the things that I muse on all the time is that there's really not a group of folks, you know, for a while it was our city or Dallas, but ongoing that has the capacity and the resources to watch what the city council does. I mean, you follow those agendas, I mean, for a few months and you're exhausted because there is so much that's happening uh, that just happens because no one's accountable. I think at least with school board, we've got organizations that are tracking what's happening. But city council, I mean, I think you can attest to this is sort of like the wild, wild west. Um, but, you know, I. I'm, I'm conflicted. Right. And some of the folks that need to be voted out. Um, that, that should happen ASAP. But I also don't think that we can miss the fact that also these things are allowed to happen because of what's not happening in the Black community is being resourced in other communities. And so the South Dallas TIF would be like a really good example um, for how those are drawn. And um, the city can make anything happen that it wants to, except for there's so many things that it doesn't. You know, Dade Middle School was drawn in that TIF. It's not a revenue generating um, you know, opportunity and that, and that's just not happening. And so, you know, not only does the council person, you know, want to see that, but also the city does, um, and, and people within that. And that's something that we have to reckon with is, uh, that folks have been really okay with the harm that's being done to, to communities of color. They um, have, it's okay if it happens. They mm-hmm. no, they absolutely have historically, but I also think that if you today said to all of the residents of Dallas, um, every Dallas resident has a right to live in a decent and clean environment, free from pollutants that could harm that person or harm uh, our, our, our globe. And if you say that to everybody, that passes like 90 to 10, you know? Um, that's, that's a very popular thing to say. So if you've decided that that's your goal, it's a little bit easier to start making rules around that. Then suddenly, once that's the rule, Shingle Mountain is then unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Except for, I would offer that folks say that in theory, but even we know that well-to-do liberal white people do not actually want to live next to people of color. <laughs> um, y- you know, like, I, I mean, and, and so, yeah. I, I mean, I was thinking about when we were talking about the homeless uh, population, uh, you think about uh, Stew Pie and then um, Austin Street, where I used to work at Opportunity Center, and there's been a myriad of homeless people there, and it's been a big issue. And they're building so many apartments over there, um, you know, off of off of Malcolm X and kind of behind in these areas. And now the next thing that's going to happen is the people that live there are going to be complaining about we have a huge homeless population. But that population was there before. And because you think that you have more access because you spent high dollar on your property, that you have more of a right to be there than helping become the solution. And then folks get criminalized. Um, And so also there is huge advantages that come from being able to grab land in a community that uh, the assets aren't valued because they've been devalued because it's majority people of color and black West Dallas. Most right. And then come in and say that the very way that this community was does not work for me and I want it to change. And then we end up with a cycle of harming and um, criminalizing black people. 
And those narratives are very important because just like the way that we want to live our lives is in direct conflict to the places um, that we want to see. And for downtown Dallas to be what, you know, downtown Inc. wants it to be, there are some people they don't want there for Deep Ellum to be what they want it to be, right? And so that's where we see the increased in police patrol and, um, you know, off-duty police and, you know, increased security um, because they are literally working and creating budgets to get people out of the city core um, to make Dallas be what the city, you know, the gleaming example that the city thinks it should be. We, we always have a disconnect in Dallas between um, how we see ourselves in the mirror and how we actually look to other people. And mm-hmm. I think probably everywhere has a little bit of a disconnect like that. I just, I haven't seen it like Dallas. I mean, it's so easy. And it's, I guess it's just attributable to the level of segregation we have. It's just so easy to not see problems in the city of Dallas. Well, I think, you know, like any other Southern city, um, you know, they have image problems and the image problem lingers from, um, you know, like the legacy of slavery. Um, And that legacy has always been the image problem of the cities of the South, you know, Um, regardless if they talk about it or not. Um, And that legacy comes with, um, you know, weird governments like the government we have, (laughs) you know, uh, city manager style governments, you know, used to be, uh, you know, that the, 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 before we had, you know, uh, single member districts, we had all kind of crazy districts that were chosen by the Dallas Citizens Council. Um, And I I think that, you know, those things are really still new, you know, Uh, not only is the city still trying to find its identity, but the, the city government is still trying to find its identity and, um, in, in, in what I think the single member district has been here since, um, no, no longer than 30 years, you know? So like, we're still trying to figure that stuff out. Um, I think also folks don't even know like the, the full breadth of governance that exists here. You know, nobody knows what Dallas County does, <laughs> you know, even though it's a billion dollar plus <laughs> governance structure, um, you know, nobody really understands how the business community still contributes to the way that um, our politics are ran, particularly in a city council. You know, um, this is a question, you know, really for you is like, I know business interests. Um, when you were a city councilman, they were, they were coming at you. Um, one of the things that, you know, me and Amber noticed are that, um, you know, this, this pattern of uh, Black politicians being uh, surveilled by the state uh, because of business dealings in their politics. Um, And I am sure that all the city council is being watched, but some folks, uh, because of the, what I guess, you know, the the lack of uh, income that is provided by the city for this type of work, right? And it's, it is not like that in in other major cities, right? In Chicago, it's almost $200,000 to be an alderman. Um, so folks don't really think about their business dealing, so to speak, until they start to, uh, advance in age, but folks here think about their business dealings as city council people. And I think that is obviously a total conflict of interest. You know, we have folks on the city council right now who sued the city of Dallas. It got money, millions of dollars, by the way, you know what I mean? (laughs) And that's the district we're talking about. So 
what is what, what type of conflicts do we have when we talk about representing people who have real issues that were created by the city that they're governing, right? Um, so I, I, I think that we have to explore that, um, do some political education. Um, and for any of this to change, folks will have to, I mean, it would have to, I don't know, some, some, some other uh, very radical, unfortunately, thing will have to happen in our city governance. I, I was just thinking about the, the data loss with DPD, right? Um, since the city manager is, 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 you know, not an elected official, right? We don't elect the people, so to speak. We elect the city council, we elect the mayor, uh, but we don't elect him, right? What direct access do we have to him other than city council meeting and listening to it, right? And I'm just saying like those issues, we should be able to speak directly to a representative of our city government about, because right now it's going to be, I mean, it's going to be a whole um, legacy of people uh, affected by that, whether it's the DA's office, the people who actually were um, accused of a crime and haven't been through the, the legal process yet. So many repercussions are going to come out from this. And, um, you know, again, our representative government isn't so representative in that case. I think my side note to that is like, to not act like the city hasn't been accusing people and convicting people of crimes without evidence. And so, you know, the city that like is, you know, rogue. but I do get the severity of feeling as though um, our, you know, as, as though our city isn't responsible to anyone. And that's been created um, intentionally. Um, and, and I also think of like, you know, we can't ignore, you know, that the city manager is black and that the mayor is black. And some of these issues that we're having around transparency are coming um, under the, their realm. And I'm not saying that it's, you know, it is or it isn't, but I'm also saying like the microscopic view that um, is sometimes put under for politicians um, who are black um, and people of color is like very interesting um, in terms of how we think about leadership and the optics of it. So I just like want to throw that out there too, in terms of like, you know, who do we criticize um, in terms of government and who's more susceptible to that criticism um, than others as we're talking about these things? Well, I think... Just this one quick point about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Because we definitely see that right now. Um, look at how the um, Dallas police chief is being received by the community. Um, and I think about just the, the previous police chief. As soon as she was selected, she was criticized. I mean, like criticized about her physical appearance. There was an article about her wearing lipstick and getting her hair done. Um, and, and we have never heard that type of like sexist, racist stuff from, uh, you know, about any other police chief. So I think that those things are really uh, important when talking about this city and, and how a city uh, treats its representatives uh, of color, too, because uh, they have this is a double edged sword for them as well. Yeah. And it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, we've we've now had three black police chiefs. And I would have thought that by the third one, we would have gotten over the the novelty of having a black police chief, you know. And uh, listen, Renee Hall did a bad job. I mean, that there's there's no defending the work that she did. But you're absolutely right. She faced crazy criticism from people who just should uh, not be heard on that issue. And so th I don't. Sometimes when you have um, a pioneer in a position, it, they're almost like set up for failure. Uh, 
Uh, I remember Bolton. that. I don't know if Chief you're Bolton. old enough to remember, but I'm old enough to remember the criticism of Chief Brown right before, uh, you know, July 6th. Folks wanted him out of that office. Um, and he he then, because of, um, I don't know what he did special except for blow up a black man with a bomb for the first time in American history. But I'm just saying that he became a national figure, book deal, ABC correspondent. Um, but I remember the rhetoric about him too, right before that. And folks were not happy with him. They wanted him out of there. So, well, I just think that some, you know, our first black police chief was Terrell Bolton and he, he faced unwarranted criticism early in his tenure as well. It would be, it would be nice if we had another black police chief who didn't get that same level of criticism. I don't know when that's going to happen. Um, yeah, I, the, you know, the city council, so we've got a brand new city council. Um, I think compared to previous councils, it shows some promise, but obviously we all saw a social media post this week that indicates that uh, some of them got some things to learn. How, how do organizers like you, um, how are you able to communicate effectively with council members or, or are you? So again, this is a different city and I'm from Chicago. So it would be very difficult for me to have direct communication with my alderman in Chicago. I would have to go through their staff, secretary, chief of staff, and maybe, just maybe I get a meeting. Here, you, you, I have council people's phone numbers, you know what I mean? And you can text them while they're on, you know, on, on the horseshoe, right? Like it's a different type of access to your public representative. And I think part of, it, part of that is the, the, the legacy of um, just disengagement with the election uh, process period, right? Dallas as a city is one of the worst cities uh, for, for voters. Mm -hmm. um, so, and participation and Texas is one of the hardest states to vote in. You know, been in, in court for what? Voter suppression, uh, gerrymandering laws that were found racist, right? So we know all of that. Um, so that's number one. Like, it's only a few of us who participate anyway. Less than 10% of us, right? So there's that. Then there's, I think, this um, don't have so much engagement. You know, you get to engage with them in a different way. You know, I, I, I think that is uh, really serious. My uh, councilwoman was Gates. Um, uh, she was very uh, conservative. Um, in some ways, I, I, I thought that she said, uh, viewed, um, you know, with a Mexican sombrero and all kind of stuff, right? She's, she's done some, 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 some weird stuff. But the, also, the I talked to her about my work. My forehead. I talked Wait, to her about hearing? my work. Um, oh. when, we know when I when I uh, asked her to come and, and give us a proclamation, she came. Right. So it's a it's a it's a different type of city uh, engagement with government. Mm -hmm. So I think that that is um, an asset, so to speak, for people here is that you are closer to your city council people than any other big city um, and that you can at least get them to sit down and talk to you and, and, and know that you've been heard. Um, our current person, I don't know if he's going to, I don't know if he's, 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 he's putting his right foot forward right now. Um, 
you know, I, I reached out to him, asked him to, to um, you know, nominate me for a, a library board seat. Um, he said he already had somebody for that seat. But as um, if I was in his space, I would be like, OK, I didn't nominate you, but let me come talk to you. Let me set up a meeting with you. Learn more about, you know, what, what your interests are. Right. So I'm just saying that there's there's some work to do still. You know, did you move? I did. I am now okay. in, in this district with you all. So uh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I, I'm a former. So much fun. I'm a former Bachman Lake uh, resident, you know, uh, and that's you know one of the most gerrymandered places. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, there were three districts touching each other at, at Northwest Highway and, and, and Marsh. But now I, I live here. I'm Amber's uh, next door neighbor almost. Oh, Brian Place. I love it. Well, it's not Brian Place. They call it the Wilson Historical District, but uh, yeah, so to speak. It's a middle, it's a middle ground between development and Brian Place. I like it. I call it Brian Place because everyone like seems to know it as a neighborhood. Uh, so yes, Philip. Well, I know as the, the Wilson neighborhood OG. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but most people don't. It's that's also interesting. Um, even thinking about Brian Place and the history that it has, which is so surrounded by, I mean, Black history. Uh, But if you go on the neighborhood website, there's no acknowledgement of it. Talk about a (laughs) historical, you know, narratives that talks about it, like as a little community that was built in the 80s, you know, never mind that it, you know, it encompasses some of the area that was the Freedman's Towns that Jerry was talking about earlier. Um, It's right around the corner from the historic, you know, uh, Black Church Pilgrim Rest that I grew up in. Um, And it's just so very interesting in which um, the stories that we tell about these neighborhoods, you know, I mean, there's a historic uh, Macadamian church, you know, right around the corner. And so like, let's be honest, folks, um, about the places in which we're in um, and give, I mean, real honor to that. Um, I think it does something. Um, so I just wanted to talk about that. Our our, our little neighborhood um, is very interesting. <laughs> it is. Um, you know, th- all these discussions about um, how to uh, remember history and how to portray history. I think some people hijack those discussions for their own ends. I think that, you know, the, the Confederates are, are the, the primary um, mm-hmm. culprits of that kind of thinking. And they then, I think what they try to do is then make the discussion so difficult that no one who's trying to commemorate um, Black accomplishments or even the, you know, the negative experiences that Black people had. I'm thinking of the, I, I started on a project to try to help community organizers put up a, a, uh, uh, a, a commemoration, a memorial um, to uh, the most famous lynching victim in Dallas history. Um, and that would be at the corner of Maine and Ackerd. I mean, right in the heart of downtown. And, you know, the city was okay with it. Like it's the location has been okay. Um, they, there was some money allocated for it when we, when we did the, when we sold the Robert E. Lee statue. Um, and I don't know why it's not happening. Like it, these, these ideas are so, it took forever. Just can we to talk about the, that for a minute? Yeah. Can we talk about that? So I'm part of, I'm on the Dallas County Historical Commission mm-hmm. and, and our goal is to put up these historical plaques um, that are um, okay by the Texas uh, Historical Commission. 
Um, and so there's a, a plaque coming for Alan Brooks that is going to be uh, where uh, the act started, which is Old Red Museum old Red. Or, the, or the old Dallas County Courthouse. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a good thing. We were told so many stories by the city. And I'm talking mm-hmm. about stories, m- meaning lies. Um, one of the lies was that DART was developing uh, a stop on the corner of Maine and Acker, and that may be <laughs> something that's happened in the future. Um, that was a lie. They allocated a park um, in downtown Dallas that had nothing to do with the historical significance of Allen Brooks and told us that this is the place that we should pick. Um, they uh, didn't want to put any more money into Martyrs Park, which is where the, most of the community wanted uh, this uh, memorial of racial violence to be because it is a natural location of another lynching that happened in 1860. Um and there's already a park there. Uh, they just put a new park sign. There's not a historical marker yet because the city literally is disinvested in Dealey Plaza, uh, the grassy knoll, and uh, the triple underpass. Um, it smells like piss. It, oh. um, there's no lighting. They, mm-hmm. they, even though it's a sidewalk, they don't want people to use it. You know, um, they, if you go to the park's website, there's no information about the three black men who were martyred um, mm-hmm. in Martyrs Park. So I, I think that's number one. Two, there are some untouchable city staff and we got to be real honest about it. There are some people who are there who are appointed for political or, um, you know, relationship reasons that are just untouchable because we have tried to get these people out of there. They have been uh, very clearly racist. They have been obstructive to really easy things that could have happened and benefited everybody in the city. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't necessarily knowledgeable about their job. They were better um, equipped and better um, experienced people who could have done that job. Um, and they're leading these processes that are really focused on racial equity when they don't even care about racial equity. I know because they told me to my face that this is about cultural equity, not racial equity. We're looking forward. We're not going back. Another thing we can talk about is Juanita Craft House, which is gifted by the estate of Juanita Craft to the city. And the city has neglected this place. Just pure neglect. That's, there's no other way to talk about it. Like it would not do any other place like this. Right. Uh, but actually the city would do there's some there's tons of places the city is neglected but <laughs> this one extreme neglect you know there's at one point the weeds were standing tall as trees out there so um, I think that there's some people who are untouchable and they're obstructive and I don't know what to do about that you know um, well, and I think I, the city manager who was in this meeting talking about it with me the only time I met the city manager and talked to him had the authority to do something about it and did nothing maybe issued a warning or something but this person has passed the uh, you know reason to fire several times and still there so well I yeah i one of the hardest things i ever did at city hall is to is is to get people you know fired mm-hmm. um no other way to no other way to put it i was after mm-hmm. some people who did wrong and i wanted them gone including a city manager you know, mm-hmm. A.T. Gonzalez, I put together a five signature memo and I turned it in on the Friday before Memorial Day and he resigned on Memorial Day, a city holiday. So 
I have some experience with it, but it was so hard to do. It's and it's a function of that council manager government. It's so hard to do that I actually had a special tie that I would wear to the next council meeting if I had managed to get rid of somebody. And me and Amber also tried to get rid of folks, not just in that city, but like in DISD, in other things. But this is not, we, we weren't out for the head. We weren't vindictive. We tried to work with them. We had volunteered our time. You know, like we have given of ourselves so much. I'm talking about years of giving yourself. And, and, and folks were obstructive, um, particularly for things that we helped create. So it wasn't that we were trying to be vindictive. We were trying to do the work as citizens, volunteering our time. And folks were obstructive to us. So, Well, I really um, don't think I was trying to be vindictive. I also tried to work with the staff um, and with most of the staff at City Hall. I have very good relationships. But, yeah, I mean... You have to you have to really do something to me for me to want your job because I consider that pretty serious. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have been going about the level of time that most of our listeners would uh, consume, but I want to give you all um, any space that you want to talk about how the listeners could engage with the work you're doing, um, or any final thoughts about things you'd like to see in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, um, Philip, I just want to thank you for, for this conversation. I think it's extremely important um, for folks to just be thinking about what's happening at the city council level. Uh, I mean, it's so cliche, but change happens at the local level, blah, 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 but truly. Um, and so getting involved in um, these processes, and I know the work that you have done and advocated for has really um what do we say? Pull back the curtain on on how the city operates and runs, <laughs> um, right? And I encourage folks to just like think about, like Jerry said, it is so. I mean, overwhelmingly easy to get access to folks that um, are proximate and have power um, in the city. Uh, but I also think about the way um, something that folks can do immediately is just thinking about the places in which we are in. And how we use um, the access that we have on a day-to-day basis and the access points that we have and driving the city. But I don't mean in a, oh, my gosh, look at those four people over there. They don't have X, Y and Z Um, and in in a paternalistic way, but really acknowledging and sitting with the ways in which the city is inequitable um, and the ways in which like we the getting of what we need in so many ways in different places in the city literally means other people not having it. Um, and so how do we begin to shift our advocacy and our organizing um, and our community efforts towards everyone getting what they need, which is what we define as equity. And then more important, North Texas Giving Day is coming up on September 23rd. The organization that I run, Young Leaders Strong City, is a small nonprofit. Um, and so just encouraging folks um, to give. There is a We'll have to come back, but right, there's a huge movement around critical race theory and what students learn in school, which really is just, I mean, cliff notes is it's made up, um, but it to control what students learn. But really um, a takeaway from that is that as much as we fight to get equity in the things that we need, there is always the continuation of the work that has to happen. Um, and so, you know, we just have to uh, remain resilient and steadfast in the work. Um, and continue to pay attention and involved. I went to Texas public schools in the 80s. You would be horrified by what I, what I, what I learned as history. 
Right. And like, I, I, you know, we're treating this as, as an historical point is the last thing that I'll say, but this kind of um, censorship and control over what students learn because it is so important. The Reagan administration also did a lot of these type of policies. And so we just have to, you know, remain steadfast in the fact that this is, you, I'm doing research on curriculum in Dallas, um, the first Negro American, you know, history class. And so this has been happening since the early 1900s. Um, we're not going through anything that hasn't been done um, or tried to be done before, but we get to create the communities and the places that we want to live in. And so remaining steadfast to that is really important. Yeah, um, I think I, I want to give a shout out to a couple of uh, uh, council people. One, uh, Councilman Casey, I, that was somebody I was really hard on when I started um, and still very uh, rough on them. You know what I mean? Because I think we should we should be bullying our politicians. You know, they, they work for us. And if they're not working for us, we should we should make them feel uncomfortable. Um, and I want to say that he has done a lot to engage. Like, again, he's one of the folks we can text. And get up very quickly, and and he, he engages and, and tries, um, and and has done a, a much better job at engaging the community. So I'm really uh, I want to just give him a shout out, and also uh, Council uh, Councilwoman Mendelson. Um, she's somebody who I uh, don't agree with policy, uh, but she engages. We DM'd each other, we we uh, argued over policy points, uh, and she will respond. She doesn't run from the smoke, which is I what I respect. So I have some respect for her because she doesn't run from the smoke and a lot of them are scared. You know what I mean? So she does. She is not scared and I really respect the way that she engages. Um, I will, you know, say Dallas TRHT, um, you know, we're here to uh, do the work um, of, you know, declining the harm of racism. Um, I don't think we can end racism in my time, but I think we can end some of the harms of it. And so that's that's the work we want to do. Um, for North Texas Giving Day last year, we started a community resilience fund. We want to give some actual financial relief to people who have uh, been victims of uh, police violence and racial violence. Um, so that is something that we're going to uh, kick off again. And we want to start um, what we call a community innovation lab, a place where we can provide finances for people who want to start to come up with ways of ending segregation and discrimination in our communities. I'm from a community level, um, so we'll be uh, kicking that off, too. Uh, Amber reminded me that uh, based on Dallas Faces Race, um, and, I th and I remember the city started a, a, a one that was called Conversations uh, About Race, uh, which was so weird. Uh, but uh, during that process, uh, you know, we received a lot of training um, from some of the philanthropic organizations here. And, and uh, Dallas TRST wants to bring um, that community of practice back to our community. So uh, we'll be uh, reaching out to our community uh, through Amber's great suggestion to create a, a community of practice again so folks can start to learn what racial equity is and how it works in a city. So reach out to us at DallasTRST.org. And, and, and in partnership with Amber and the work that Young Leaders Strong City and the Imagining Freedom Institute do. Yeah, and the Imagine Freedom Institute, we are we're working on like research about our city. So if anybody is interested in, in like researching um, and finding the historical, uh, you know, context about uh, modern day issues, uh, look at us. We have a, a, a couple of projects that we've already done. 345, Amber's working on a, a history of black schools. 
through my deep vellum connection, um, working on a, a, a book called uh, A People's History of Dallas, where we're uh, trying to get some different narratives about Dallas. Um, so there's some things that we are working on and we would love to engage with you all. Um, our website is theifinstitute.org or .com. And we're also on um, social media as well. I would, knowing the people who listen to this podcast, at least a few of them, I would be surprised if you didn't get at least a couple of contacts, especially on the research front. They seem to find out stuff. They, they, they take pleasure in proving me wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the that's the petty crew I need to uh, connect. Yeah, with. yeah, 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 for sure. You got you got to have the the pedantic people to to do for the sure. detail work. Well, for listen, sure. uh, Jerry and Amber, yeah, I have, end, yeah, I need to ask you the question. So, on the day of the paper rip, this is the Super Bowl uh-huh. in City Council. Tell me, play by play, what was going on? Because that was one of the greatest moments in City Council history. Well, uh, thank you. I'm not sure it was. And when Nancy Pelosi did it, <laughs> when Nancy Pelosi copied me, I wanted to send her a note to say, this is probably not the best thing you can do as a leader. Right. Um, but, so, honestly, the only thing that was going on is I was pissed. Um, Adam McHugh is. Um, kind of fake sometimes and he'll tell you he's with you and then suddenly he has this plan where we're not going to do paid sick leave that he's calling like a paid sick leave plan and I was just pissed I mean what kind of person does that who listens to me talk about it for months and months and months and is in the same committees with me all this stuff and then like at the horseshoe is pulling that shit and he's pulling it for Mike Rawlings you know, that, that's all the business community just, you know, being conservative white people. And I, I, I just didn't appreciate it. it, so it, it, it is, I, hope it, I hope the entertainment value is worth something because it, it certainly it did nothing for my political life. <laughs> I know it didn't, but it, can, it goes on to infamy. And so much is forgotten and lost in the horseshoe, you know what I mean? But that one will, will, will remain in high-def pictures uh, on right. social media for a while. I have seen it used as memes. Um, it's, it's traded around. It's like a, a state rep was using it for something. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad I did one thing that's going to last. Well, listen, let me thank you both very much. Um, I, I think that, so the reason I had y'all on is because both of you have taught me stuff. Like, even if you're not aware of it, I follow your stuff and I read what you write and, and it, you know, it's stuff I need to know. And so I think it's very beneficial for our listeners to get some of the benefit of your wisdom on these, these topics. Well, we appreciate you. Thank you for having us. Um, would love to connect. So uh, connect with uh, me and Amber. We would love to sit down and talk or if one is really smoke a cigar or uh, scotch or some whiskey. Hey, I'm on board with that. And uh, I actually, being back in private practice, I now have really good scotch and really good cigars. Uh, that's awesome. We need to connect it. That's all I, I'm, I'm ready, sir. You're, you're a neighbor now. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> 